Moving on today, uh, I'm happy, I'm excited, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here because um, we get to experience um, uh, Dr. Gregory Coles as our cha- chapel speaker today. Um, Dr. Coles, Greg, is the author of two memoirs, um, one titled Single Gay Christian and another titled No Longer Strangers. He's also the author of one novel called The Limits of My World. Uh, Greg holds a PhD in English from Penn State and lives in Boise, Idaho, where he works as a writer and a speaker. Greg is a senior research fellow at the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And uh, I'm super excited to be having him here with us this morning to to help us along in this conversation. So give it up for uh, Greg Coles, please. Hello, folks. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, A couple preliminaries before we get going. Number one, uh, Darren correctly said that my name is Gregory, but I'm really glad that he went on to call me Greg because I would hate for you to go through this morning thinking of me as a Gregory. Um, Because most of the Gregories that I know are like popes or villains in middle grade fiction. Um, And I hope that I'm not like a villain in middle grade fiction and nothing against the popes, I'm just not one of them either. So so please think of me as Greg. Um, Preliminary number two, uh, while we're on the subject of language, I recognize, so we're gonna talk uh, to some degree about sexuality this morning, and I recognize that there's a lot of very contested language in sexuality. So for instance, I am going to use the word gay some this morning, and when I use that word, I will be defining it in the way that many English dictionaries do as persistently and exclusively attracted to the same sex. Now, some of you may hear me say that word and you're like, oh, Coles, you should have used a different word like same-sex attracted. Or some of you may be like, no, 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 gay is much too conservative and boring. You should use a spicy, fresh word like queer. And all of you could debate that with each other. We could have fascinating conversations about it. I love such conversations because it's how I keep a job. But we are not discussing these things this morning. So um, do me a favor, and if you hear me say the word gay and you think I should have used a different word, I give you permission to just take out the mental red pen in your mind and like whatever I have said that you don't like and scribble in the term that you prefer and we will all be happier for it. Okay, fair enough. Um, Preliminary number three. I'm gonna be sharing today uh, within the context of my own story, and so I wanna name up front that this is my story, and I don't wanna suggest that this story can be neatly mapped onto the experience of every other person who's LGBTQ or same-sex attracted and seeking to follow Jesus. Uh, One of my favorite novelists uh, is the Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and if you haven't read any Adichie, do yourself and humanity a favor and read some Adichie because she's terrific. Uh, But she says this about the single story. She says, the single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, but that they're incomplete, because they take one story and make it the only story. So my hope this morning is not that you would hear my story as the only story, Rather, my hope is that uh, you would hear some things within my story that might spark ideas for all of us about what our discipleship, our pursuit of Jesus might look like. And as you hear me say that, maybe some of you are thinking, well, Coles, but you said you were gonna talk about being gay, and I'm not, so I don't see what this could possibly have to do with me. Don't worry, I've thought of you too. Which is why I will punctuate our conversation this morning with a few moments that I like to call straight people applications. Okay, so if you're sitting there and you're hearing me tell this story and you're like, I don't know, he's talking about being gay, he's still talking about being gay, don't worry, because your straight people applications are coming. Okay, 
and, and in the end, I, I confess, the, uh, the straight people applications, they're a bit facetious, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because really the thing I want to propose to you is that in the end, there's no such thing as straight people applications and gay people applications, that actually in the end, the gospel turns out to be remarkably the same good news for all of us. Because it seems to me that all of us, as we approach Jesus, are fundamentally asking the same three questions. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And if he is, what would it cost me to follow him? And if I give those things up, is it gonna be worth it? Is Jesus who he says he is? What would it cost me to follow him? And is it gonna be worth it? It seems to me that those are the right questions for all of us to be asking, regardless of our experience of sexuality, regardless even of what we believe scripture has to say about questions of sexual ethics. Those are the questions that all of us need to bring before Jesus as we approach him. So, with all of those preliminaries in mind, I'm going to begin my story for you in puberty, which is the worst time to begin any story. Now, here's what happened to me in puberty. I, I grew up in a, in a church setting, which means that I grew up going to youth group, and sometimes in youth group, they would split the boys and the girls up, and this invariably meant that we were going to talk about sex. Uh, I also remember at this stage of my life, all the girls seemed freakishly tall and wore a lot of eyeshadow. Um, so they'd take all the tall eyeshadow wearing girls and they'd send them off to one room and I have no idea what they said to the girls that one time they all came back carrying roses. Um, and then they'd get the boys together and they'd be like, look boys, we know what you're going through. You wanna look at pictures of naked women, but don't do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah no looking at pictures of naked women. And I don't mean to brag, but I discovered that I was remarkably good at not looking at pictures of naked women. <laughs> like, I was so good at it that I started to believe that I was like the holiest 12-year-old in the world because they kept being like, every young man is going through this, you're all struggling. And I was like, I think I've been spared from this vile struggle because I just love Jesus so much. It took me a little while to realize that I did, in fact, have an experience of sexuality, an experience of attraction. It just wasn't the one that I had been trained for and braced for. And so very quickly, I went from feeling like the holiest 12-year-old in the world to feeling like the worst possible 12-year-old in the world, the one who was so bad that nobody had bothered to warn me that somebody like me might exist. In the, in the Christian community that I was part of, there were kind of two narratives that I knew of for somebody who was in my shoes, somebody who was gay and wanted to be a follower of Jesus. The first was the ex-gay narrative, which was the one that was more common in, in my Christian spaces by far. And this was the story that said, look, if you're gay, you need to figure out what has gone wrong in your upbringing to make you that way and then you need to fix it so that over time you can become the thing that God wants you to be, which is, of course, straight. And they had all these, all these theories for what was supposed to have made a person gay, but the prevailing theory at the time was that if you were gay, it was because you had a distant father and an overbearing mother, uh, which didn't particularly match up with my life. And I wish, I wish that you could meet my parents this morning. I would love to just parade them across the stage for you here, um, but I cannot. So you're just gonna have to take my word for it when I say that my parents are delightful. Uh, my father, not at all distant. My mother, not at all overbearing. And yet the other thing that the ex-gay narrative said was, 
Look, if, if you're gay, you just need to pray, you need to trust Jesus, you need to grow in your faith, and as you do those things, the inevitable consequence of them, the inevitable consequence of your growth will be that it causes you to lose an attraction to the same sex, become attracted to the opposite sex, so that you too can marry, have 2.3 children, and live happily ever after. And I thought to myself, you know, even if, even if these explanations of what made me gay don't make a lot of sense, like prayer I was already planning to do, uh, growing in my faith was already on the agenda, so, so yeah, let's, let's do it and see what happens. And so I tried to measure the state of my spiritual life and spiritual growth on the basis of how straight I felt at any given time, which led me to do some really wild things along the way. For example, and this, by the way, is not a recommendation, not a how-to for those of you taking notes, um, but one time, I remember I came across a picture of a scantily clad woman. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've been told that if I love Jesus more, I would be straighter. And I've also been told that if I was straight and I saw a picture like this, like I would feel things, you know, like I would want to lust after this picture. And I was like, I'm going for it. So I took the picture and I was like... And for all the good it did, I might as well have been staring at an office supplies poster. <laughs> but it was so deeply ingrained in me, this sense that in order for Jesus to show up in my life, he had to show up in this particular kind of way. And the longer that went on, the more I realized, you know, I am in fact growing in my faith, uh, imperfectly as we all are. Um, I am falling more deeply in love with Jesus and yet those things are not changing the pattern of my attraction. And so I reached a kind of point of crisis where I really began to wrestle deeply with this other narrative that I had heard, which was the same-sex marriage affirming narrative. Uh, and this was, the, this was the story that said, if you find that you're gay and you want to follow Jesus, you just need to revisit the places in Scripture that seem to address same-sex sexual behavior, and you'll conclude that those aren't really relevant to you, that there is, in fact, a way for you to pursue a same-sex sexual relationship. Uh, and then... You can, you can go forward, you can, you can love Jesus and have everything you want in the realm of sexual expression. Uh, and, and for so long, I had avoided asking that question because I was afraid of what I might find if I did. But finally, I reached this point of crisis where I said, I think I need to actually go back to scripture and see this for myself. Like, I can't just take somebody else's word for it anymore. And, and this, for those of you who have been waiting on the edge of your seat for it, this is straight people application number one, which is that it is in fact a good and worthy and noble thing for us in the moment of crisis to go back to scripture itself and say, let me see for myself what this text has to say to me. If we actually trust scripture, if we believe that it is God's authoritative word given to us, then we need to trust it enough to let it prove us wrong to let it prove our communities wrong. And yet, also, if we trust scripture, if we believe that it has authority over us, then we need to trust it enough to let it tell us things that we don't wanna hear. So here's what I found as I did my investigation of scripture, and I'm not going to go deeply into this conversation here, though I would love to with you later. Like, if you wanna get all geeky about the New Testament Greek with me, I would be delighted. Uh, so, you know, find me later, well, let's talk. Uh, but for now, I just wanna give you in brief three things that I found as I did that deep dive into scripture. 
The first thing I found was that there was no biblical promise that I would be straight, which was weird to me because I was so ready for it to be in there somewhere. Like I could have sworn that there was a passage that said, then shalt thou experience the sexual attraction only to the opposite sex and never the same sex somewhere in the book of second hesitations. (laughs) I could have sworn it was in there and it just wasn't. There was no biblical promise that I would be straight. There was no biblical promise that I would get married. There wasn't even, horrifyingly, a promise that I would ever have sex. The second thing I found was that when it came to this question of sexual ethics, the question of how somebody in my shoes was called to live, I found that that question was complicated. Uh, that it was a lot more complicated than some of the well-meaning people in my life made it seem when they were like, look, Cole's... You just flip open your Bible in the English translation. You find the word homosexual in there somewhere. It's bad. Case closed, moving on to something more pressing like the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Um, (laughs) Like, I found that this conversation was actually deeply complicated. And, And so I found myself, in many ways, very viscerally sympathetic to the folks who decided that there was space as followers of Jesus to pursue a same sex relationship. And yet, Despite that complexity, the third thing I found was that even though that conversation was complicated, there still was, as as well as I could discern it, a best answer within the text of scripture, that there was still a truth that deserved to be pursued. Um, And again, as well as I could discern it, that, that truth seemed to be that somebody who was in my shoes, somebody who was exclusively attracted to the same sex and didn't have interest in pursuing an opposite sex marriage, that I was called to singleness and and to celibacy. And when I reached that conclusion, it seemed remarkably unfair to me. Uh, And I wanna wanna read for you uh, a a brief excerpt uh, from one of my books where I wrestle with that question of unfairness. Here's what I wrote. Obedience was supposed to be costly When Jesus told his followers to take up their crosses and follow him, he wasn't just calling them to place heftier checks in the offering plate or to put up with the occasional irritation at work. He was calling them to blood and sorrow and unspeakable agony. He was calling them to death. In many parts of the world, this calling to death is still very much a literal one for those who declare their allegiance to Christ. And if not death, perhaps the risk of beatings, of deprivation, of complete ostracization from family and community. But in the Western world, lulled by freedom of religion and unprecedented wealth, it's easy to lose sight of what words like suffering really mean. We begin to believe that ease and safety are the baseline experiences of humanity, the natural states of being from which any other state diverges. And suffering, when it comes, feels like a violation. Suffering shocks us. I'll follow you, we say to Christ so readily, watching the thorns dig into his forehead. And then, moments later, we cry foul when we discover thorns of our own. Maybe the problem isn't that gay Christians have received an impossible task. Maybe the problem is that so many straight Christians have given themselves a task that is too easy, a cross too bearable. As gay Christians are expected to deny themselves in desires for sex and family and intimacy, desires that feel so intrinsically part of their being, 
Some straight Christians will simply channel those desires toward a single woman or man, get married, have kids, join a country club, attend a welcoming church where everything has been designed with people like them in mind, and chase the Jesus-festooned brand of the American dream. Now, I don't mean to belittle the self-denial necessary to a God-honoring, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Remaining faithful to a single partner is no small feat, or so I'm told. And certainly, some straight Christians who desire marriage may yet find themselves called to celibacy. Regardless of orientation, regardless of marital status, Christ's invitation to the cross remains no less true and no less necessary. But the road of celibacy for the gay Christian remains a distinctly complex calling. To not only resist sexual sexual urges, but to try to banish the thought of ever fulfilling them. To have no daydreams of a future romance, no wistful marriage plans. To feel like the very core of your sexual desire and the faith you hold most dear are at odds with each other. There are sufferings far worse than this, but there is none quite the same. My heart has its own fracture lines, its own unique ways of breaking. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe the calling to gay Christian celibacy stands in 21st century America as a precious reminder of just how desperately, helplessly devoted we were meant to be to the cross of Christ. A reminder that every sacrifice we make will pale in comparison to the sacrifice made on our behalf. Maybe the problem isn't that faith costs some of us too much, but that it costs all of us too little. And just in case you missed it, this is straight people application number two, which is that if following Jesus doesn't cost you something, you might need to reconsider whether it's actually Jesus that you're following. And certainly this is not to say that you should all go and be celibate because Lord knows some of you ought to be fruitful and multiply. But it is to say that if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can look at every aspect of your life, if they can look at the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money and the risks that you take and the risks that you choose not to take and the people you love and the people you honestly would prefer not to, if somebody who doesn't know Jesus can look at all of those things in your life and make perfect sense of them without knowing who Jesus is, then it may be that Jesus doesn't actually have as much influence on your life as you thought he did. And if all of this sounds a bit dreary and depressing, I don't want us to end there because I'm a big fan of the word delightful. Um, I'm such a big fan of the word delightful that in my previous church community, I lived in Pennsylvania for eight years and while I was there, um, I used the word delightful so often that people just came to associate me with the word. So for instance, one time I set up a meeting with the lead pastor of our church, his name is Aaron. And uh, when Aaron put our meeting in his calendar, he didn't write my name down, he just wrote, delightful meeting. And then his secretary saw his calendar and she was like, oh, delightful meeting. I see you have a meeting with Greg. That's nice. Um, (laughs) So it was just like a thing that people knew to associate with me with this word. Uh, Anyway, in that delightful meeting with Aaron, I I came out to him and, and told him a lot of the substance of what I've just told you in the last, you know, 20 minutes. And toward the end of our meeting, Aaron looked at me and he was like, you know, Greg, you're saying all this with a smile, which makes sense because you're delightful. But he was like, what you're saying sounds kind of difficult. And so I'm curious whether you're actually as happy as you seem or whether you're just good at letting people see what you want them to see or what you think they need to see. And I thought about it and I said, you know, Aaron, 
I'm happy, and it is a very complicated kind of happy. I'm happy, and there are things about my life that are distinctly difficult and, and sorrowful, and yet those things don't diminish the joy of following Jesus. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that the thing that you and I are called to as disciples of Jesus is a very complicated kind of happy. One of my favorite moments in scripture, it's so good that it's in all three of the synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Luke 18. And it's this moment where Peter has come to Jesus and been like, "Uh, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. So I just want to know if there's like going to be something for us. Uh, And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter. He says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers or wives or children or fields for my sake and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present life. Homes, fathers, sisters, mothers, brothers, children, fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And I love that Jesus doesn't deny that something is given up in following him, right? He doesn't say to Peter, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing, now quit whining and go stand over by Thaddeus. He recognizes that there is real loss, there there is a real letting go of the things that we thought we most needed in order to be happy. And yet what Jesus promises in turn is something so much better than everything that has been lost. And it's not just a promise for eternity. He doesn't say, suffer through your miserable human existence and then you will die and things will finally be better. But he actually makes a testable promise. He says, in this life, you will receive a hundredfold the very things you thought you had lost, the very family you thought you had lost in pursuit of me. Friends, this is straight people application number three. Because Lord knows gay people are not the only ones who need to be reminded that our truest joy, our best flourishing, is found so often not in the ways that we think we should naturally pursue it. It is in fact found by way of death and resurrection, as we sang about earlier this morning. That the best path to human flourishing is found by way of letting go of all the things we thought we needed in order to flourish and then finding in turn, by gift of Jesus, something so much better than everything we could possibly have earned for ourselves. And this, it seems to me, brings us back to the same three questions with which we began our time today. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And if so, what kinds of costly invitations are you and I invited into as his followers? And if we step into those invitations, if we step into that death, then what awaits us in resurrection? My prayer for you this morning is that you would believe that there are, in fact, invitations into a loss of things that seem so essential to your joy, and that you would find on the other side of that loss a gift that far outshines them all. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I ask that you would speak into our hearts this morning a reminder of who you are, of the beauty, the goodness of who you are. And I ask that you would speak a challenge into our hearts this morning to invite us into ways that you might be asking us to pursue something costly 
out of obedience to you, out of a desire to see your kingdom come more fully on this earth in this age, would you dare to ask of us costs that we have not yet dared to take on ourselves? And most of all, Jesus, would you reassure us of the goodness of your promises that everything we leave behind will be so much less than the things that we find in pursuit of you. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed, I believe. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. I told you Greg that You are undismissed. <laughs> I take it all back. I told you that you could dismiss them, but I forgot. I forgot to invite you to a continuation of the conversation. So at 11.30, if you don't have class, um, bring your lunch. 11.30 to 12.30 in Nazareth Great Room, um, Q&A with Greg, and, and we'd love for you to be there. Um, if you have somebody in your life here on campus who wasn't here now but would like to be there then, uh, quickly text them and tell them to come. Again, 11.30, NAS Great Room, uh, one hour of Q&A with, with Greg. So. Beautiful. Now Thanks. you're dismissed. <laughs>